Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is Margaret McSweeney, your host, and I would like to say a special welcome to you today for dropping by and listening. If you are a newcomer to my Kitchen and Kitchen Chat show, I'd just like to share with you what Kitchen Chat is all about. The kitchen is a gathering place for family, friends to sit around and share food and also share what's going on in our lives and and what we're learning. And that's the premise of this show as well, to to gather friends and experts and and others into the kitchen, because I broadcast right here from my kitchen counter here in the Chicago suburbs, and, and discuss some relevant topics and some great takeaways that will apply to you. And not everything always seems to, um, uh, to come together in terms of food, but, but we just want to provide experts on different topics because just pretend you're sitting around my kitchen table here and, and chatting about things going on today and, and how it pertains to you because this show is all about you. We want you to take away some great recipes for food and dishes, but also great recipes for life. And with that in mind, I am just so thrilled today to introduce you to our outstanding guest, Dr. Nathaniel Williams, also known as Dr. Nat. He is the author of seven books, including his most recent, Attaining Your Personal Best, and Navigator of Life as well, as well as many others. Dr. Nat is also the founder of Human Works, a Pennsylvania-based social services group, and he brought that about, and I can't wait to hear more about this. He actually went through the foster care system of New York, and he is just such an outstanding person and will give us some real takeaways today of how to get through difficult times in a positive manner. And I know maybe a lot of you are going through some difficult times right now with the economy and and just maybe personal situations. So I'm just so thrilled today to bring into the kitchen and sit at the kitchen table here with Dr. Nat. Dr. Nat, welcome to Kitchen Chat. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. Oh, well, thank you. Um, Could you start off, please, Dr. Nat, by sharing your story? Sure. I was uh, uh, born in uh, 1965, and in 1970, uh, my mother uh, passed away from a cranial aneurysm um, mm-hmm. after uh, leaving the hospital and uh, uh, leaving behind uh, 12 children, um, mm-hmm. and uh, 10 of them were under the age of 18, and so we needed to rely on the foster care system in New York uh, to continue to raise us, because uh, when you get a telephone call uh, saying that you're sister passed away and you, can you take her 10 children, mm. uh, you can imagine that's a lot to, for people to, 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 to fathom. Exactly. And, uh, so we needed to rely on the foster care system and uh, my youngest sibling was two years old and I think my oldest that needed to go into foster care I think was about 16. Um, so she had a, a fair amount of children in that, uh, in that span and uh, I ended up spending 13 years in the foster care system before uh, aging out. Um, and uh, and immediately knew um, what I wanted to do, which was human services, and so I've been in the field for uh, the last uh, 20 years or so. And as you said, I'm, I'm a CEO for a nonprofit um, uh, group um, here in Pennsylvania, um, but, but also am a uh, husband and uh, father of eight children. You have and, eight uh, children. That's wonderful. So we have a set of twins and uh, that are five, and uh, the boy uh, Taj has autism, is, uh, and the girl. Uh, uh, Kenya um, uh, does not. So, what has been interesting is spending all these years working as a as a uh, as a provider uh, for people with uh, developmental disabilities, and then, you know, five years ago becoming a, a father of a child uh, uh, with uh, with autism uh, was uh, thought to be a very interesting uh, uh, challenge. But all of the things that have happened in my life, I think, have prepared me for the things that have been yet to follow. Yeah. Uh, trying to figure out a, a way to embrace um, that situation. And I was <clears throat> penning uh, uh, some notes the other day, and I was, you know, talking about when, you know, it's when luck and opportunity, you know, doesn't come your way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just doesn't seem you're a lucky person or really the most opportune person. It's having the, the ability and the tenacity to still go forth and to still have that sense of hope. And, and that's what I've attempted to, to do 
is to recognize that, you know, again, when I look at my life, I wasn't the most lucky person and really did not have the best opportunities, had opportunity, but just not the best of them and, and trying to figure out a way to still uh, make it work. So that's uh, pretty much been the uh, the story uh, of my life. Yes, and I I really look forward to talking about the tenacity and, and how you knock on those doors when they don't seem to be opening. But first, a little bit more, please, about your experience in foster care in New York. Um, as I understand, you were separated from the family. I mean, not all of you could go together? Sure. At, at um, the, the funeral home, uh, the city came and I uh, had uh, ten, uh, the ten of us there, and uh, five fa- uh, five taxi cabs, and they said that we're going to call time in about uh, you know five minutes. So, whatever taxi cab tab you're 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 you're, uh, you're closest to is going to be the foster home you go to, but no more than two of you can go to each foster home. Oh. And I you know share that with people in the sense of saying sometimes the way you start is the way you finish, and sometimes I don't think the child welfare system understands how important of a role that every decision that they make um, in, in a child's life puts them on a pathway. And one of the things that I've you know, talked also with people about is the first 20, I think you've watched the television show or heard of the television show called The First 48, and yes. how important that yes. is in trying to get to a crime. But I think uh, how to, you know, trying to solve a crime, I think it's also so important in people's lives that that first 20 really defines so much about what's going to happen in the next 60. And so often with kids in the foster care system, we don't spend enough time examining the profound impact that first 20 years of life has on their next 60. And, you know, so much research has shown that people that have had, you know, serious mental health issues, people that have been incarcerated, people have ended up in other systems of care, how much, uh, how frequent those lives have been touched by the foster care system as well. Uh, and I was writing again something the other day, and I don't think people realize that 750,000 children every year have contact with the foster care system. That would make them about the 15th largest city on the, in the United States and larger than, than, than uh, population-wise than four of our, 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 our states. So it's like saying to North Dakota, could everybody just leave the confines of this state so that we can bring the, America's foster children all in one geographic area, or going to a city like you know, Baltimore or Boston or Denver mm-hmm. and saying the same thing to them. Could you just all leave so that we could just put the foster children of the United States in one geographic area? So I don't think we recognize the, the amount um, uh, of impact uh, the, fo- the foster care system, the child welfare system has. And about 250,000 children come into the system every year, mm-hmm. and another 250,000 or so leave the system. But there's about you know 400, 500,000 that are in the system for for a couple of years, and they're not they're not making movement. Um, and I was one of those kids that for 13 years uh, stayed in the system, and they've done a lot better as a system of getting kids in and getting kids out. And mm-hmm. the number of children has dropped. Um, the number was around 900,000 uh, around uh, 2,000. Um, so over the last uh, you know nine or ten or 11 years, the number has gotten, uh, you know, so much better. But uh, Down to 750,000, right. which is as big as it's a still, It's still a pretty, pretty, pretty large a, a number. It is. Now, why do you feel that people are leaving? Why do you feel that the number has decreased from Well, the number has decreased because, one, the, the system understands that, uh, and this has been a historical um, um, a challenge for our country, is whenever we see something wrong, <coughs> excuse me, we have the tendency of feeling, let's just move the person and, and change the geography. And mm-hmm. so I think that that mindset uh, was also part of the child welfare system. And people don't recognize um, that that was the way it was done in New York years ago is that there were all these kids that were orphans and they would put them on a train and bring them out to the Midwest and, and sign them up with a family. Um, and uh, again, thinking that they, they can't stay in New York because there's no one here to care for them, put them on a train. And, uh, and move them out to the West, and, and uh, they'll have a better life. So mm. th- that mentality, you know, uh, has been part of the child welfare system for a long period of time. We've had the same mentality with people with developmental disabilities. There's a problem, put them in a place out in the country someplace, uh, out of sight, out of mind, and, uh, you know, let them congregate to- to- together um, and uh, make, a, make a, a village all onto themselves. And as time has gone on for children as well as people with 
developmental disabilities, we've recognized that's not the best technology. So what they've done is a better job uh, of reaching out to kinship. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of states and and, uh, and cities and counties that really do a good job of reaching out to other family members to say, you probably can't afford to take on your your nephew or your grandson or your granddaughter um, without uh, some assistance. So here's a little bit of assistance, but let's try to uh, keep them with family. So that's been a big uh, effort to to use kin and uh, what they call kinship foster care as as one way. But another is just trying to keep kids and working through the the problems that families have. A lot of times it's missing people. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's moms that are missing or dads that are missing and trying to fill that hole uh, with some other resources um, has made a difference to the number of children uh, that have needed to uh, definitely be in placement, but also the number of children that have needed to be in foster care together. So I think that there's just a, a better technology today. Um, right, um, right. To, to, uh, to deal with the, the, the children and their families than we had in the past. And you know what, Dr. Nett, this can be such kind of a broad concept. You hear these things, oh, there were 900,000 children, now 750,000 children in and, and foster care, but you truly put kind of the face and the story behind us. I, I think it makes such an impact when people hear, you know, and, and, and you bring it to the forefront and, and have made such a difference. And I want to hear more about human works shortly, but could you share with us from that taxi cab? And I, I still am getting choked up and I am just in shock that there were five taxi cabs outside of your mom's funeral and the 10 kids had to choose you know, a taxi cab and go with another sibling. That, that, that I just don't know how that could occur. I mean, are things like that still happening, or is there more sensitivity in terms of of the placement where there's just not a taxi cab waiting outside? Well, I think that there's no. I you know work in the child welfare system and founded a, a nonprofit called uh, Child First Services, mm-hmm. um, which provides uh, you know uh, foster care services and and and. and home services for about 75 kids. So oh. I'm hoping that we're doing things uh, differently. But one of the things that uh, the system still does is, you know, kids are, are moved and they're moved with, you know, using a black garbage bag um, as, a, as, as the instrument of carrying their belongings. Oh. And um, so there's subtle, subtle things such as that that really, you know, go a long way. And it wasn't until, you know, one of the children we had served a couple of years ago had said, you know, I'm sitting here looking at that black garbage bag. And to anyone else, that is where they put all the stuff they don't want. But for years, that's where I put everything I wanted to keep. So it's those kind of things that we just, you know, don't recognize as a system that leaves such an indelible mark on a person's life that they just don't look at garbage bags the same way as everybody else. Uh, does and um, so I, I think the system is wising up. And one of the things is the is the challenge for the system is to speak to the people. Yeah. I'm 46 years old, and this is the I'm working on a group and uh, that's working on trying to improve the Philadelphia uh, Human Services system. I'm 46, and this is the first time someone has ever asked me uh, to be part of looking at the system and trying to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a, a professional, <laughs> uh, right? So. I can only imagine the people that just have had the exposure to the system that are not working in a system, how their voice is lost. And I constantly keep trying to remind the system that we need to hear the voices of the children that are in placement and have been in placement and their mothers and their fathers um, as well. Because uh, in my own uh, organization, I was interviewing a young lady for for placement and she Mm -hmm. was pregnant. uh, Sorry, she she was a mother uh, of a two-month-old child. And so the, the, the teenage mother was going to be in foster care. Now the, uh, her baby was going to be in foster care. And then I met her father, and he's 30 years old, and he was in foster care. Oh. So 30 years and three generations of exposure to the foster care system. There's a wisdom uh, that they have uh, right. that we need to tap on to learn how do we support them better. And, and a major challenge um, is, is, is poverty. And I don't mean poverty just in the financial sense. I mean poverty mm-hmm. in the sense of an educational system, poverty yeah. in the sense of a spiritual uh, system, po- po- you know, poverty in the sense uh, of recreation. Um, so there, th- that's what our communities are struggling with, and it really has a great connection 
um, with the failing of the family um, and the, the members of the family to be present and available. And that's yeah. one of the challenges that a lot of us don't recognize in our own lives. You know, we're not, we may not be a foster child, but the question is in, in our own life with the people that we're dealing with, are we present, one, and when we're present, are we available? Because one of the things that I think that people don't recognize is the greatest um, uh, part of, uh, of people being hurt is when someone is present but not available to them. And so mm-hmm. I can understand, you know, my, my mother, she, you know, she wasn't able to be present, so thus she could not be available to me. And my right. father was is unknown, and on my birth certificate, there's no name on there. Mm-hmm. And when I got a copy from uh, the New York City Department of Health, it just says mother's name. There's not even a spot for the father's name uh, wow. to, be, to be put in. Um, but that's understandable in my situation is the person couldn't be present and available. But we have so many relationships that we're dealing with now where we're, where we have to really question, are we present because we're alive and breathing and, and able, and, and then are we available to them? And, and right. that's really a challenge that I think we all need to, to look at. And I'm hoping that uh, as I talk to people about foster care. They don't understand it's really, a, it's not a, a story about, it's not so much a, a story about foster care. It's a, a story about uh, lived experience where, where things have been subtracted. And we really have to ask ourselves, okay, I understand his story, but what does that mean for me? And right. I hope that your listeners would think that maybe, again, you have had no exposure to foster care adoption, but are you, are you there? Um, being that, you, you, you know, you Nat lost his mother, but you are someone's mother. Are you present and available to them? And one of the things that we have to recognize, if we're not, something, someplace else is going to be. And yes. when, we, when that choice is made, is that one that we're, we're comfortable with? So, again, I'm hoping that by sharing the story that people are able to, to allow for some reflection and introspection uh, to themselves to say, well, what does that really mean for me? And hopefully there's something in it uh, for them to take away. Yes, and and I do um, want us to discuss, you know, how people can be present and available and and tying it into your latest book, Attaining Your Personal Best. But there's something I just can't get over yet, Dr. Nat, and that is the black garbage bag. That just breaks my heart. So for all these years, not only you and your siblings, but, but people presently in the foster care, children are carrying around black garbage bags with their belongings. Sure. And, and again, it, the system just says, hey, let's grab something quick. But I've always learned to do the right thing always takes more time, money, and other resources. And anyone that tells you anything different, that you can be a good husband on the cheap, that you can be a good employee on the cheap, that you can be a good you know, sanitation person. You can't. To do the right thing, to put those garbage cans back where they belong, right. takes more time. And so your reality is you're going to add 15 minutes to your run on that truck um, by doing it the right way. So we need to understand as a society, to do it right always is going to take more time, money, and other resources. And so exactly. when, a kid, when a kid comes into the agency, that you know, we have bags that say child first services on it. They're duffel bags. They're blue and uh, mm-hmm. light blue and dark blue. But that's what they're given. And when they leave, you know, we make sure that they're packed in a suitcase if they have a, a lot of stuff or those or those stuff. But we, we we have to do the part that we can do uh, yeah. to make things that, that are better. But, again, um, the, the, the things that stick in a person's mind that have had these kinds of experiences, I think we'd be, all be so surprised. Um, and one of the things that I, you know, people say to me, I, I hear your story, and I say, you know, my story is nothing. You know, my, it, compared to the stories of the children that are going through the system today, because mom died, dad was unknown. We have mm. a lot of children who have people that have chosen other things to do with their life than to care for the children that they brought into this world. Right. And in my situation, she couldn't do what she couldn't do. But we have right. a lot of individuals who mom is in jail. Uh, you know, dad is um, is recovering from uh, a drug addiction, and other things have been more important. And when you look at these children in the pain. That they're that they're enduring because those choices were other than them, it's it's beyond words so often. And so trying to get people the the, the skills and the insights to understand, let's come back and reclaim um, that child of yours, um, that that, that um, responsibility um, is also. Uh, and part of the system only wants to work with the child, but reality is the child is a product of and connected to a community, to a family, uh, to a mother and to a father, and we have to work with them as well. 
And so often that's what you hear from the parents is that Mm -hmm. you're the first agency that has ever reached out to me as a person. And, you know, one of the things I do, I interview every child that comes into the agency because I want them to know that I care from the gate. And I want them to know if there's ever a problem, you you can't say you did not meet me because I was the first person you ever met connected to this particular agency. But Mm -hmm. also on getting on the ride back, I will get on the phone and I will say that your daughter call the mom or the, or the dad if I can and say, your daughter or son was referred to the agency, and I really want to ask your permission mm-hmm. um, to, to support you and to support them and to see if there's something we can do. And I cannot tell you how impactful that has been. You know, people have had to say, you know, I, I just need to, you know, to take a break for a minute. And you, and you hear them, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, crying in the background and, and sharing emotion that this is just, they've just never been dignified. Like mm-hmm. you know, because reality, there's a court order that says where the kid's going to go and not going to go, and and they don't really have very much say in, in most of these situations. But for someone to say, please tell me about your son or daughter and how we can support them well, and and for that child to see that a relationship is being built to try to get them back to their family from the first, even before the first day, right? Goes along. But I I think that whoever the people are, mm-hmm. we have to find a way to dignify them, and I think your your program. Um, with the concept of, you know, of a kitchen and how yeah. sacred that place is. It basically says that you know, everyone is of value. Everyone deserves to eat. Everyone deserves to be nourished, and, and no matter who you are. And I mm-hmm. think so often we forget about the dignity that we need to help um, uh, others feel when they, when they don't feel it and to really right. recognize that, that there's the things that we do, and some of the basic things, just like eating, is so important to give people the courage you know, to, 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 to feel that they can create and that they can care uh, it just goes a long way. But it's yeah. sometimes those fundamental things that we all have to do. It's not complicated. It's just to say, hey, I want to be present and available uh, to people in my life. And if I can do that in, 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 in a simple way, as well as a sophisticated way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and do that. And these are just such wise words, Dr. Nat, and, and applicable to all. I, I want to go back to this black garbage bag. I, I just can't let this sure. go. Is there any way, and I'm sure the Kitchen Chat listeners would jump behind this, is there any way that we can grassroots start Operation Suitcase and mm-hmm. make sure these 750,000 kids who are in the foster care system in America right now, each and every one of them, to make sure each and every one of them has a suitcase instead of a black garbage bag. Sure. As a way to dignify them. Sure. And I think that that suitcase can be that tangible suitcase. But one of the things that we've also worked on is working working with universities. One percent of foster children ever graduate with a degree, a higher education degree, where the national average is about 22 to 26 percent. Those numbers are problems. Um, for, 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 these, for these children. And so what we've done with a university here in Pennsylvania called Kutztown University mm-hmm. is twice a year we bring the foster kids to the, to the campus and they walk in the shoes of the president of the university, Aww. a professor, a student. So that suitcase that you talk about can look in lots of different ways, but it's the package of love. And how yeah. can we let these people know, whoever they are, whether it's a a person struggling with cancer, struggling with drug addiction, struggling with whatever the issues that life presents, how can we bring it to these foster children and give them a suitcase and let them know that, that, that there's love there, but also those other people in our community that are right there. And sometimes it's that next door neighbor. And that suitcase right. just may be, you know, a, a gallon of milk because we know that, you know, it's been snowing for the last couple of days and they probably haven't been able to get, but they're too prideful or you right. haven't had a, a conversation with them in quite a long time, so that that suitcase can look differently. But it's just the, the, to, to say that I see that you're there, I see that you matter, and, I'm gonna, and I want to make a difference. And I would support 100% whatever efforts you could make um, uh, to, to, to support these 750 foster children. But again, I want us to recognize there may not be a foster child right available to you, but there are so many other people in your community that are right yeah. there that I'm sure needs your help. And so do what you can with what you have and do it now. And that's what right. I'd want to encourage your, visit, your, your, your viewers uh, to, uh, and listeners, excuse me, to understand is that, you know, so often we're putting things off and we're pro- pro- procrastinating. And when you procrastinate to care, 
I, mm. I think that that's a real, tra real tragedy. So however we can make a difference, whether it's with children, um, with seniors, and anyone in between, I think would, would go a long way. So I would encourage people to do what they can, because sometimes when we give them the task of reaching out to a population that may not be there, readily right. available to them, they don't do anything. And I would want to encourage, I don't care where you live, I'm sure that there's some you know, person, a place or thing that could use your energy um, and would thrive better because you able, you're able to let them know that they matter. So we could do yeah. that. I think it would go a long way. But again, with the garbage bag, I'm right with you. Um, and we're trying to do the little things we can in our organization. But if this was a, a more of a, um, of a, of a national, and, and sadly to say, this is an international problem as well. I mean, I, I went wow. over to the, uh, the, uh, the UK. The funny thing is that they do a far better job of monitoring and, and caring for, for, for orphans and, 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 uh, and foster children than we do in, this, in the United States. I mean, the credentialing of staff and the training of staff would blow your mind. You would think, well, in the United States, we really should be doing things uh, you know, differently and with a greater level of expertise. But the, the, the abandoned child is an international problem. It's just not um, mm. a, 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 United, a problem that the United States is dealing with. It, it, that is such, such a problem. Um, I, and I keep on coming back because a lot of the listeners are very much faith-based and, and I think they can relate in, in whichever way about being responsible for widows and orphans. I mean, that is a mandate. And the foster care, many, many, many children represent that and maybe not um, physically orphaned, but but abandoned and orphaned in a sense. And we do need to do our part to reach out. So um, perhaps we do not know individually, as you said, a, a foster child, but um, just reaching out and making a difference in someone's life that might need it. And, and I encourage listeners to perhaps check with their their churches or their places of worship to see what types of needs within that community might might be present that they're unaware of. Sure. So that could be another source. And, the, and the, as you know, the internet is a great wealth of, of information, just going into Google and saying, you know, typing in helping foster children. You'd be yes. so surprised at what comes up. And there's a court advocate uh, program uh, the, uh, that's, uh, that's available in lots of states and, and, and cities and counties where just plain people can just say, I want to make sure that the, the children get what the, from the legal system what they're supposed to get. So there's lots of different ways to, to care, but it could just be finding out where the nearest uh, a home or institution or foster care agency is and just dropping off some suitcases and just say, please just pass them on to some kids that, that could use them. And, and exactly. just hoping that this, this suitcase, you know, brings them to a place where there's some love and yes. just walk out the door. And I'm sure that they'll be so impacted by people just taking the time to do that. Oh, that is, that's just so touching. And, and at your Child First Services, um, mm -hmm. is, is there any need that you have there right now that listeners can rally behind? Sure. I mean, there's, there's needs across the board, but I would really want to challenge them to, um, to look at their local community uh, okay. and, and take care of what those issues are. You know, because of my uh, perspective and background, I would say that these 75 kids, they're, they're well taken care of, but there are so many other children out there that are not um, associated with uh, an agency. It's just, just a plain old kid who's just struggling with mom's issues or dad's issues or living with grandpa or living with grandma or just living with, with, a, with a friend of the, of the family because of their, their situation. Those, those are the kids that I really worry about. It's the ones that have made it into the system. I wish the system was doing a better job of it by them, but sometimes those are the lucky ones. Um, it's lots of times when they leave the system and they become 18 or 21 and, uh, and there's no more paid supports. That's the real challenge. We had a recent, you know, situation with one of our kids that his brother, um, was murdered. And, and I, and I said, how old was your brother? And he said, my brother was 20. Um, and I, and this young man is 18. So, so often, and his brother was in foster care as well. It's so often that when they leave the system and they try to go out to the world, as I, as we said earlier about the, the, you know, we, do, we deal with the first 20, it's those next 60 years of life. Right. And preparing them to deal with that is a real, you know, real challenge. We had a, one house that has been outstanding in their behavior, and we sent them on a, a cruise to the Bahamas for five days, and those kids were, were, were flying high and still are flying high because they just uh -huh. got back last Wednesday. But one uh -huh. of the things that sometimes the system uh, you know, does is it, it gives them a, a, a cost of living 
mm-hmm. that they could never have at home. And so sometimes, the, you know, the system, unbeknownst to our efforts, we cause more of a strife um, um, uh, because the children are trying to, you know, correspond that I could get a home with lights and electricity and people that care if they're willing to spend $70,000 to put me in a group home. But my hmm. family just needs about another $700 a month to be able to just try to live at a level that would be decent. But the, the system can't give me the 700 but they can spend the 70000 And so that's a, that's a real challenge. And yes. one of the things that as I sit at tables and try to converse, we need to be able to figure out how can we show this level of care and compassion um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a less expensive scale where they, they, may, they may not be able to go to the Bahamas, but right, they, they right. least, you know, so many of our children, we, we're in the Philadelphia area, so many of our children have never left the confines mm. of the city of Philadelphia, and they're 17 years old. Um, so there are some real challenges and some things that we can just do on a local level to, to try to make a difference because the need is so great and it's, a, it's, it's so across the board. It is. And, and you, Dr. Nat, are just an outstanding example of, of really succeeding in spite of everything. Can you share with the listeners you know, how you faced with tenacity um, those doors that, that just seem to be closed? And, and what do you attribute um, to really getting where you are today? Sure. The funny thing is I'm sitting here at a, uh, an agency called Sacred Heart Villa, which is an old convent um, that uh, was converted um, to a personal care home uh, where the elderly sisters live on, on several floors and then lay people live on other floors. And so as they age, um, they're able to um, get the support that they need. And I serve as the president of the board, and we were having a finance committee meeting just before I needed to call into your show. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I've learned is how beautiful life is. So I'm 46, but when I was 12, I was in an agency run by Catholic nuns mm-hmm. called St. Dominic. And there was an executive director, Sister Mary Patrick, and uh, she saw me sitting on the front step of the administration building. She comes walking out and says, hey, Nat, what's up? And why are you sitting there looking sad? And I explained to her that my brothers and sisters were supposed to come visit. And probably my, you know, three or four years there, my, my brothers and sisters probably visited maybe maybe uh, two or three times. Mm-hmm. But this time that they were not able to make it. And so she said, Nat, just sit there for a second. And she walked down to the storeroom, which was right next door, and came up the steps with a bicycle. And she gave me that bicycle. Um, and I took uh, took the bicycle and said, "Thank you so much, Sister Mary Patrick." And she was like, "So, so, um, such full of humility for being an executive director. You would never think that a person as kind and as gentle as her would be in a position with such, you know, great responsibility." But I took that bicycle and I, I rode back to my cottage, and all my cottage mates were excited and asked me to buy it. But something dawned on me at that moment, and I was about twelve or thirteen years old, and I said to myself, "If I'm not careful." That is going to be the rest of my life, telling a sad story and waiting for a handout. And I said, that's not going to happen to me. I hmm. said, you know what? Sister Mary Patrick, big shot. She's making, she's making some things uh, happen. Mm-hmm. So I began uh, to sign my name, Nathaniel J. Williams, Executive Director. It took wow. me another 13 years for that to become my official title, but that writing gave me a pathway. And I think ah. so often when we're talking when we're writing, we don't recognize how important the words that are coming out of our mouth are. Because mm-hmm. so often, we'll, you know, we'll sit there and have a test, and we'll say, you know what, I'm going to fail this test. And then when you get the grade back, guess what? Mm-hmm. You failed the test. Right. And so it's important for us to understand that we telegraph the destination where we want to be by the things that we say, the things that we do. And, and so it's so important that we think about where we want to go. And that, would, to me, was the blessing was realizing Sister Mary Patrick so that today, you know, some, you know, 33 years later, that I can sit here and try to help these nuns um, in in their later years of life to try to be comfortable. But it was, uh, it's paying back what was given, uh, you know, to me uh, these 33 years before. And Sister Mary Patrick probably, uh, I'm not sure if she's still living at this particular point, but she may never remember that situation. But that little sense of compassion, just like dropping off those suitcases, just right. just like you know, picking up that 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 milk and dropping it off to someone who may already have a gallon of milk, but they'll just appreciate that you took the time to, to care. 
So I think that yeah. that's, to me, what's so important is that as we travel through this life, there have been people there that have made a, a difference to let them know, thank you, because again, I'm sure she did not think that bicycle was anything other than a recreational time activity for me to do, but mm -hmm. it has made such an impact on my life about, as a leader, how to be a leader, and more importantly, it gave me an idea of what I wanted to do, and I've held on to that idea and tried to become uh, the executive director that I saw she was, and, and, and hopefully um, sort of trying to take it to the next level as well. Um, so I, I just think being open to those situations in life uh, and just understanding it's not, that was not a big, you know, uh, catastrophic moment. It was a simple moment. But I think that life was speaking to me, and I think God was speaking to me to let me know this is what it's all about. Never, ever forget where you came from and never forget the importance of just being noticed. And we live right. in a society that says you can use your iPad, you can use your iPhone, you can use all this other stuff, and you just don't, in your eye, in your eye touch, and you don't have to be connected with other people. And that is right. a lie. And we have mm -hmm. to understand those things are wonderful things that are tools that aid and, uh, you know, aid us to, to, to be more functional and more effective. But there's nothing like someone just spending quality time with you to say, you matter, I care about you, and I want to invest in you. And, and we're getting into a society that's getting away from that. And I call it the non-people moments that they're deadly. And we have so many uh, moments in a day's time that are calling us to spend that non-people time. And we just have to fight back to say it's, if that story meant anything, it was Sister Mary Patrick, as big of an executive as she was and had hundreds of children and hundreds of staff and millions of dollars of a budget. She just took a couple of minutes and look what that did for that man, um, and that boy that's now a man and for all the other people that he's been. So that, that, that one person's life has touched hundreds, if not thousands of people that she will never, ever see. But I think that's what our legacy should be, is recognizing yeah. we do have an impact, we are empowered, and that our time, whether it's at our kitchen table or at work or in the community, those things matter. So invite people in to be, sit at your kitchen table. Don't fight the, the natural things that are happening where everyone's so busy that no one can sit at the table any longer. You say, right. you know what, at least one day a week, we're going to get everybody here at the table, whoever those everybody is. If your house is an empty nest, then you have to say to yourself, we're going to build a new nest. Just trust me, uh -huh. there are other people in your community who could benefit from being at your table and being able to break some bread and to, to laugh, I mean, as well as to cry about some of the things that are going on. But to, to, to not accept the defeat to the things that you think are as important, it's, it's so important. And that's what I refuse to do. Is to, I, I refuse to accept that I was going to be defeated by what life uh, had given me. Oh, this this is just so profound and full of goosebump moments, Dr. Nat. When when you said you had signed your name, executive director, and years later you were able to officially sign your name because of the influence of of the sister who was present and available mm. and and dignified your life and helped you break that cycle. I mean, you and, and further determined you to defeat that cycle. The, the, this is just profound. And then I love what you said about the non-human moments. You have to really minimize that because you're right. We're, we're connected to electronics, but we're not connected to people so much of the time. And that, that is so important. That is so important. This You are just full of wisdom. Well, thank you so much. And I, I appreciate the, the platform that you provided uh, to, to be on your show and to spend some time. I, I think what you're doing for people uh, as a conduit is so very important as well. And my voice would not have a, a, a wave or a platform to come out without uh, people like yourself uh, giving this opportunity. So I, I appreciate all that you do. And I think that's what a community needs to do. Everybody needs to do their part. And if we're all doing our part, this is going to be okay. Right. If you stop doing what you were doing and I stopped doing what I was doing, you know, where, where would our, our community and, and our world be? And I think that's right. the responsibility that we have to uh, have to have. And it's that fellowship that I don't, yeah. I haven't ever seen you. You've never seen me, but there's an, there's an appreciation um, uh, for what both of us have and, and, and as humans and wanting to, to believe that there's better things that we could be doing and there's better, there's a better Nat on the other side and there's a better you on the other side yeah. and just having that belief. And yeah, there'll be things that, you know, knock us down and, and make us weary of other people, but we just have to say to ourselves, if we're committed to this, we have to stay on there. And I, 
was overseas uh, this uh, spring speaking to the troops, which was the first time I've ever oh. you know ever been overseas. Uh, and they 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 were went crazy. They had us in uh, you know six different countries over 19 days, and it was wow. the most one of the most profound experiences that I ever had. And and I was working with a gentleman to put together my speaking notes. And one of the things that he put in there um, that I think was so um, so profound is he took a quote from Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill said, "Never, never, never, never give up." And for mm. a lot of us, it's that you know we give up on the second never or the third never. But our success is going to be when we're sitting there and trying to get together this this kitchen chat that we want to have, you know, once a week with uh, with uh, you know teenage kids or with uh, you know some older people in the community, whatever that we stay committed. That trust me, they're going to try to knock it down when you're trying to put it together and have other things on the agenda on the second never. But it's that third and fourth that we need to hang in there for and just say that's what the tenacity that we talked about earlier has to come yeah. from. It's just hanging in there. And if anyone understood that, I think Winston Churchill did, and I think is a real role model for that. But I realized that that's been the story of my life when I have been successful. And I think for most people, is when they stuck in there with that dire, that diet, um, on that fourth never. When they stuck in there with that savings plan on that fourth never. That we just said, you know, we're just not going to give up. But so often, I think what happens is we give up early. And I think that the, the beauty of what life is supposed to offer was was lost. Uh, because we gave up too soon. So just never, 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 never give up and have that tenacity on on the journey. And, and your journey continues to be such an inspiration, Dr. Nad. And and I, I just encourage the listeners out there to to get your resources, his latest book, Attaining Your Personal Best. And and what's a, a quick synopsis of that you'd like to share? Well, sure. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing that with your listeners. Um, it was just 12 conversations that I, excuse me, 11 conversations that I think have been so important. One was about, example, is about transparency versus conspiracy. I believe it's one or the other. When I'm talking with you today, either I'm being transparent with you or I'm, yeah. I'm trying to run a conspiracy. It's one or the other. And right. so we just need to recognize that. And that another was about a conversation about needs versus wants. A lot of us are living our lives based on our wants, not based on our needs. And I think that's where the burden and the confusion and the hardship is coming from, is we're not addressing our needs, we're addressing our wants. You know, the efforts that have to go under, you know, trying to make yourself to, to, to become different. There's another chapter about that. Uh, mm-hmm. The importance of choices and options, and that when you make your first choice, it determines your options. So mm-hmm. when you decide to live in Pennsylvania, as an example, that's gonna, that choice is going to determine your options for your seasons. We have a lot of people in Pennsylvania that really want California weather. Reminding <laughs> them, you know, your first choice determines your options. And right. other chapters are about fear, uh, about you know dealing with information without heightened emotions. So there were there were eleven things that I really thought when I looked at attaining my personal best. These are the things I had to have under control. Mm-hmm. Another chapter is about fear, and about another another one's about enthusiasm, and the last chapter is about uh, having a, aspiring associations, not things that inspire it, because that's good for the moment, but Hmm. associations that help us to aspire to something better. Some research was done um, that said that you're never going to do better than your five closest friends. And we have to Hmm. say to ourselves, are we surrounded by people that, five people that help us to aspire uh, to something better? And so often that's that's not the case. So these were conversations, and and the book is small uh, and short, and it's about two pages for each of the 11 um, uh, points that I wanted to make, um, mm-hmm. and I tried to uh, be succinct in the things that I wanted to, to to write, so that people were then asked to find a rock, sit down, and ask yourself some questions. What does it mean to me, to my family, uh, to my community, to the work that I do? When I think about transparency, am I in situations, you know, in, in relationships where I can be transparent? Um, so again, uh, that's what the attaining your personal best book is about: is those courageous conversations that we need to have with ourselves and mm-hmm. with others that we're in fellowship with. And, and it's tough because a lot of these things are things that no one wants to talk about. Right. Um, but uh, it, it's so important if we're going to attain our personal best. And again, our personal best, you know, my, what, what's best for me is not going to be best for you and vice versa. And so we need right. to understand that's why I say it's your personal best and you decide what that pathway is going to look like. But if we don't have these conversations with ourselves and with others, I don't think we're ever going to get there. And if we do get there, I don't think we're going to stay there. And that's, to me, what's important is that we should not lose the ground that we've been able to uh, to gain. And you said something earlier about the journey. 
And I think so often we live in a society that says everything is a destination, and it isn't. It's a journey, and just recognizing that, that, that we have to, to develop it and maintain the energy to continue on that journey and be open because we have no idea where it's going to take us. And I could never imagine the things that have happened in my life over the last couple of years would have, but it was really getting that challenging life event of the death of my mother and reframing yeah. it. And I think that's the piece, the piece that really allowed me to grow. It's those events that happen in our first 20 that sometimes throws us for a loop and that's our energy and our interest and our desires and our dreams for the next 60. And that death of my mother at age five you know, zapped um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and was really sucking me dry. And over the last couple of years, I've been able to get a different perspective and, and my life has taken off. And so I would encourage people to look at your life and say, you know, was there something that happened that was a challenging event that really, you know, threw me for a loop and got me a little lost and stole my, you know, my ability to be courageous and stole my ability uh, to, to feel empowered? And how do you reframe that? And sometimes it's just as simple as saying, I made it to the other side of the event. Mm -hmm. And so often just being able to say that, I, that you survived it. And now the question is, are you going to live your life like you did? One of the things that I talk to people about is I think we live our life so often how we were hurt, not how we were loved mm -hmm. and how we were inspired, but how we were hurt. And then we go into the next relationship trying to live our life based on, and, and it just doesn't work. We have to wow. recognize that those moments of inspiration and love are sometimes few and far between, but those are the things that we need to have as our motivation to go forth. But going from where you were hurt um, and always looking at everything through that lens is a very painful existence. And uh, it, it's, it's so you know, interesting with this perspective when I look at people, you know, people think that they're able to disguise their pain and they don't want to talk about what hurt them, but people that especially want to victimize you, they mm. can see it a mile away. So you may not think you're obvious about the divorce that happened when you were 13 or um, having to move four or five times um, and, and restart. But reality, people that want to a lot of times bring you harm can see that. But even if the ones that want to love you, because it is something that you haven't reframed just in a simple way of saying, I made it to the other side. Now, can I start living like I was successful? We so often have situations, especially when it comes to death, that reality is, you know, it was a painful thing, but now we have to recognize we're at the other side of it. We're still living, yeah. and we start acting that way. <clears throat> but so often, because it's so painful, we stay stuck in the moment. And that's where fellowship and people moments are so important, where someone can tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, Nash, I know you want to stay there at that address, but I know there's a new destination, a new place in your journey that you need to go, and I need to encourage you to go there because that's where you were meant to be, and that's where your good work that can be done. And one of the things I share with people when I'm speaking is I stood at the foot of my mother's casket for mm -hmm. 35 years, and I didn't realize I was standing there. I went off to become a husband and a father and, and other things, but in a wounded state. But mm -hmm. over the last five or six years, I've been able to turn that around um, because I've allowed myself to reframe that. And I took a, a, a PowerPoint video that a friend sent me as an email mm -hmm. that life was like a train ride. And in the, in the third or fourth slide, it said, your parents are with you for as long as you need them. And I was like, what? How could wow. it be? I said, you know what? I've, I've done it my way all this time. Let me try someone else's logic. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that logic. Right. And I recognize I'm on a train ride, and I'm going some places that my mom thought I could go, and I'm also going to stop some, uh, some places along the way that's going to blow her mind. But I am <laughs> not going to believe the headstone, the death certificate, the, all the other stuff. I'm going to take myself on this journey. And I'm going to recognize I made it to the other side of losing a parent, and I have to behave that way so that I can give my eight children um, the opportunities that they deserve. And where hopefully foster care is yeah. not ever an, an option for them because of, and that's what we have to do so often is we have to erase, you know, some of the things that have happened that when people look at us, you know, the highest compliment I've ever received is that when a person understood I was in foster care and didn't have a mother and father after the age of five, mm. they said, looking at you, you would never know that you were a person without a father, father for sure, and, and, and without a mother, you would never. And that's what I think our compliment needs to be, is that whatever challenge that we have, it shouldn't show up in everything that we do. But so often, the, the pain and suffering that we've experienced shows up in everything we touch and we touch mm -hmm. it with those tainted hands and we want positive things to come from them. 
and it just mathematically just can't happen. Right, and it's about reframing the operative go. word, and and maybe instead of uh, and and a change of uh, I guess prescriptions for glasses. We need to put those glasses of face on. Sure, you go. <laughs> to get the the direction and and reframe and and the journey and just not the destination. Dr. Nat, this has just been just just so empowering, um, and I'm sure the listeners will will feel that too. Thank you for well, sharing the words of wisdom and for sharing your story. And and I just encourage listeners, just don't procrastinate care. I love your operative words there. Don't procrastinate care. Be present and available to those in your lives. Dignify others. Validate others. Go out of your way to do something special for someone who just needs needs a little hug, needs a, a gallon of milk, needs something, be there. And remember the children and foster care as well. And let's all brainstorm. I'd love to hear from, from the listeners, and, and I'd love to coordinate with you, Dr. Nat, about oh, an operation it. suitcase where sure. these 750,000 kids in America are not going to be carrying a black garbage bag anymore, but a suitcase wow. that is physical but also um, something that is is just intangible that they are valued and loved, and there is a future for them and a journey ahead. So thank you, Dr. Well, Margaret, thank you so, so much, much, and I appreciate, again, as I said earlier, all you do, um, you're having a great impact, and I appreciate being honored uh, to be asked to join you and uh, as well as your listeners. So thank you so very much. And thank you. And listeners, please be in touch. Please go to uh, Amazon.com and, and purchase Dr. Nathaniel Williams, Dr. Nat's uh, latest book, Attaining Your Personal Best, as well as his other um, wonderful resources, Navigator of Life is another book. And um, we just would love to have you back on Kitchen well, Chat. And, and maybe, <laughs> yes, the next time Give to Give me the date and time. I promise I'll be Perfect. Here. Oh, this is a conversation to be continued for well, thank sure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. So and much. Thank you. And, and please be in touch, listeners, and remember, savor the day.